Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I'm really excited about our guest today. Um, his name is Steve Jurovics, and he's got a brand new book out called Hospitable Planet, Faith, Action and climate change. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Steve. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. Well, it's it's absolutely my pleasure. You know, we've covered the intersection of faith and environmental protection before on Go Green Radio. Last year, when the Pope's encyclical came out on environmental protection, um, we had Father James Martin come on and talk about that. But I really feel like your book comes at this from a very different angle, and I'm excited to dive in and talk about it. But before we do, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about your background. It's fascinating. Um, you know, your work in aerospace engineering and your work in energy efficiency in buildings. Um, tell us more about that. Oh, certainly. Thank you. Uh, well, I, um, I went to, to college. I got my bachelor's and master's degree, and then I secured a job in the aerospace engineering in, with an aerospace engineering company. And I was very fortunate that that first job put me into a particular department that um, had someone there who had recently left the company, but who had been working on a problem that was very important for that for that company. Uh, the, the company was working on the Saturn rocket. They were charged with building the second stage of the Saturn rocket, and they were also involved with, uh, with the Apollo moon capsule. They had a particular task with that. And so the problem this person had been tasked with was finding a way to minimize the flight time of a rocket from Earth to a circular orbit. And that was important because if you minimize the flight time, you minimize the amount of fuel that was consumed, and therefore you save that weight, and that weight could then be added to the payload instead of used in fuel. So it was a way to maximize payload. And this person had developed the equations for this, but had been unable to solve them. Uh, it was a computational problem, and he was not able to solve them. And I came in, and they gave me this theoretical formulation, and I was able to solve it. And that was really, really grateful. I'm very grateful for that. For uh, After about a year and a half from college, I had my first paper published. And so that was really good, and it kind of set me on a course to doing similar work for several years. And so I did work in aerospace engineering for a number of years and then moved into environmental work, mainly involving energy conservation in buildings. And my last sort of 16 years in the corporate world up until the end of 2013 were involved as working with a contractor to the Environmental Protection Agency on various aspects of climate change. So that's kind of the background. Well, so so we're actually talking with a rocket scientist here today. Yes, <laughs> I love you it. Are. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
when you envision, you know, the readers of your book, it's it's a big task to sit down and write a book, and uh, you know, there's a lot of energy that's put into that, and and I'm sure that you had in mind uh, those end users of all this work product for your book, Hospitable Planet, Faith, Action, and Climate Change, and when you were thinking about them, um, you know, for whom did you write this book? Who are your target readers? Well, the the book is written in three parts, and the second and third parts of the book really apply to a general audience because I'm discussing ways to mitigate climate change. And that's not faith-dependent. That's really for a general audience. But part one of the book does discuss the environmental teachings in Genesis through Deuteronomy and, and, and was written with a Christian audience in mind because there are a lot of Christians that can really bring some influence to this to that topic. So it was written uh, with a Christian audience in mind, although the teachings that I'm referring to come from Genesis through Deuteronomy, so they apply equally well to Jews as well as Christians. Mm-hmm. Well, and I can also imagine that, you know, some of the people who are involved in the environmental movement who may not be people of faith sometimes try to convince people of faith that they should be on board. So it might be a playbook for them as well, I can imagine. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. That's true. So you talked about Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, you know, where in the Bible are we finding this guidance on environmental issues? Uh, give us a little bit more specifics than just, you know, those those books of the Bible. Sure. Well, to, to give you a little background, um, with this kind of engineering background and working on climate change, what I did is see if there were teachings in the Bible that related in any explicit way to the problems on which I was working. Uh, this was sort of an exercise in what I called um, spiritual curiosity. Where do I find things relating to recycling or global warming or how we treat the land or how we treat animals, things of this nature? And I did a couple of years of research, and there are lots of things there. The, the part about climate change really comes from teachings about air pollution, and we find those both uh, in the Bible and well as in post-biblical teachings, um, which was called the Talmud. There are, there are spe- very specific teachings about air pollution that arose in biblical times because of tanneries and wind-borne chaff and the decaying of animals and so on. As we began to live in communities, we had to tackle, among other issues, issues of air pollution. So teachings were handed down. But they were really based on biblical teachings, namely, love your neighbor as yourself, which is in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. So there are teachings about animals, about how we treat animals, given in, in Deuteronomy as well as elsewhere. The teachings about the land are, are given primarily in Leviticus, is what I'm referring to. Uh, teachings about recycling, what we now call not being wasteful or sustainability, are given in, they really have their roots in Deuteronomy 20.19, which says, when you uh, are laying war to a city, do not destroy its food-bearing trees. You may eat of them, but you must not cut them down. And the um, commentators on that saw that not only as a specific about not destroying food-bearing trees, 
but not being wasteful. So the whole uh, movement about not being wasteful and ultimately sustainability really has its roots in that Deuteronomy 2019 statement. Mm -hmm. Of most importance is, well, not most important, but of great importance is the preserving biological diversity. We are really um, destroying species at an alarming rate, about 100 times what would be the estimated as the natural rate. And the loss of species diversity is significant, and that really connects with uh, a passage in, well, it connects with the Noah story in Genesis. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that in more detail in just a little bit. You know, there are many, many American Christians who are opposed to any public policy or even, you know, open political discourse addressing climate change. And I'm wondering why you think that's the case. Um, you know, you mentioned Genesis 1.28, and that passage is used a lot to um, sort of justify this use and abuse, if you will, of the earth. Talk to us about the ramifications of this particular passage and a possible misunderstanding of it. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a really great question. Uh, Genesis one twenty eight is the passage that says, um, Master the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the animals that move on the earth. And I think that our prevailing interpretation of that is it's all ours. It's all ours to rule as we want. Uh, it was given to us, and it's ours to deal with. And that, I think, is a, is a misinterpretation, and it's a very sad misinterpretation. But I think that's, that's a fundamental one, and I think that is part of where we, we kind of move away from thinking that climate change is something we have to attack from a biblical perspective, because after all, if it was all given to us, then it's ours to deal with as we want. The other part is that I think Christians are looking primarily at the New Testament, not the Old Testament, and there's a great history for that, but the, there aren't the teachings in the New Testament that are found in the Old Testament. I mean, the writers of the Gospels and the Epistles were not trying to, to recreate the law, and they weren't trying to rewrite the law. They were writing about the life and times of Jesus and his teachings and his disciples. And for them, the law was the law. It was still relevant. It was still part of how they lived and what they connected to. So when we do not look back at the law, we miss all those teachings that are there that have now become particularly relevant to us. And I think that's part of why uh, Christians are not looking so much at it. When they look at the New Testament, they don't find anything particularly relevant to climate change. And they're right. It's not there. It's in the Old Testament. That's, that's the difference, really. Well, and in your book, you made two, I think, really significant points. First was that for Christians, you know, who, who follow the teachings of Jesus, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he makes several references um, in the New Testament as it's recorded that, you know, not one letter of the law, not one stroke of a letter of the law will pass away until, you know, uh, Time, you know, uh, here on Earth is over. Exactly. And so it's it's incumbent upon Christians who believe what Jesus said to know what he was talking about. What is that law? The other point that I thought that was so interesting is that, 
you know, you encourage Christians not to take one passage like Genesis one twenty eight out of context, but rather to look at it in light of all the other um, references to the way that we treat nature and creation in the Old Testament and all of those rules together to get a truly clear picture of, you know, what the the law yes. is asking us to do, right? Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, so when you look at that Genesis one twenty eight passage, it says, Master of the earth and rule over all the life on earth. You are the master, you can make the rule. Then you get to Genesis 7, where God tells Noah to build an ark because he's going to destroy all life on earth, and forgive the masculine pronoun, uh, where God is going to destroy all life on earth, and that Noah is to put on board the ark essentially pairs of all of life that exists on the earth. So all species are to be uh, saved. And the concluding of that in Genesis 7 is that, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Okay. So Noah had no discretion. He was not the ruler here. God was the ruler. God was telling Noah what to do. And the Bible says, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. So mm-hmm. I think right there you begin to undermine that prevailing interpretation of Genesis 1.28. Mm-hmm. That, that we have the, the right to, to dominion and subdue it. And I want to go back to that after we take a quick uh, commercial break, because, you know, as I have traveled around the country and talked to various groups about environmental protection issues and climate change issues, I get that an awful lot. You know, dominion and subdue, two big keywords in Genesis 128. So we'll talk about that a little bit more. And there's so much more to dive into with Steve. So don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Steve Jurevix, and he's got a brand new book called Hospitable Planet, Faith, Action, and Climate Change. And just before the commercial break, we were talking about how there are many Christians who will uh, reference Genesis 128, the passage where God gives man dominion over the earth and uh, essentially the the green light to subdue nature. And we were talking about how sometimes that's misunderstood if it's taken uh, out of context or all alone as a standalone precept. But Steve's book has put together quite a comprehensive list and explanation of other passages in the Old Testament, what Jesus uh, would have called the law, um, that deal with how human beings in their connection to God also have a connection and a reliance upon the natural world. And we'll talk about that some more as we go along. But Steve, I would love for you to talk about one of the statements that you make in the introduction of the book. It's a very strong statement, and I'd like for you to kind of expound and expand on it for our listeners. You said, I do not believe, therefore, that people can remain indifferent to the ravaging of creation and still call themselves people of faith. Talk to us about what you mean by that, Steve. Yes. Well, the the creation narrative, as given in Genesis, remains powerful for both Christians and Jews. That's a, a, a narrative, a story to which we refer. And what you have, part of what you have in there, like day three is the creating of the land and vegetation and trees, day five, the birds and the marine life, day six, the land animals, crawling things, and humans. And we are, through climate change, causing significant damage, devastation, to those very things that were created back in that time, in that narrative. And so I find it difficult to see people as people of faith who are very content with causing damage to these things that we go back into Genesis and see, the vegetation, the trees, the birds, and humans. We are damaging all of these founding elements of creation, what God called good. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's really kind of where I, how I make that statement. You know, like yourself, I give talks about how we can take action to address environmental degradation. I do that all over the country. And on numerous occasions, uh, in lots of different locations, it's not all been in one particular part of the country, I've had people of faith come up to me and say, hey, you know, I'm not sure that humans are causing climate change, but even if they are, um, and even if there is environmental damage, you know, I put my faith in God. I believe he'll take care of us and continue to give us what we need from the earth. And Steve, I'm never sure what to say to those folks. What would you say to that line of reasoning? Well, I would say that God is taking care of us by giving us the intelligence to deal with these problems. 
we know how to mitigate climate change. At least we, we know many of the things that we need to do to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So that fundamental part of the problem, we know how to deal with it, but we don't have the will. That's, I think, what is lacking. Mm-hmm. And God gave us free will. And right now, we are choosing to damage our own life support system. Interesting. So the, you know, the Bible instructs us really on how to live upon this world that we have created, that God has created for us. And we are not following the very basic and crucial elements of those teachings. So that's kind of yep. what I would, I, I mm-hmm. would say, that you know, God mm-hmm. gave us what we need to, to live on this planet. We have the mm-hmm. brains to figure out what to do. We just need the will to do it. You know, recently I gave a talk um, to a Catholic group, and we were talking about the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si, uh, which is, you know, about the care of our common home. And we were talking about the issue of preserving biodiversity. And after the talk, a gentleman came up to me and he said, you know, there have been animals going extinct for you know, thousands of years, it happens, you know, it's survival of the fittest. And so, you know, so what if, you know, we lose some species, you know, I really don't see why that's such a big deal. And I really enjoyed, you know, juxtaposed to that thought, I really enjoyed your interpretation of the story of Noah and the ark. And I'd love for you to share with our listeners how you link this story to our responsibility to preserve biodiversity. Sure, thank you. Um, well, God tells Noah to build an ark and to put on the ark um, pairs of animals of everything that, that exists on the earth to save all species. That's the message that comes out of there to pairs of the birds, pairs of the land animals, pairs of the crawling things, of everything that's there. And that is repeated a couple of times in Genesis, two or three times in Genesis. We get the very clear message that there is an obligation to save pairs of the animals of all life on Earth. And we are now destroying that, and we are destroying it at a rate about a hundred times faster than what would be the natural rate. Mm-hmm. So people who say that, yes, we have, you know, species have gone extinct in the past, of course they have. This is quite true. But our rate of species extinction is now estimated at 100 times above the natural rate. And E.O. Wilson, in his new book, estimates that it was going to grow to about 1,000 times more than the natural rate as we move towards the close of this century. In fact, there are some researchers saying by the year 2100, we will lose half the species on this earth. Mm. That would be catastrophic, truly catastrophic for our for our life as well as all other life on Earth. So it it is very important, but it really is looking at the time scale. And our rate, as I say, is now about 100 times higher than what would be the normal rate of species extinction. Unbelievable. That's frightening. Um, Really, really frightening. Especially, you know, for those of us who have kids, you know, to think about that the fact that either they or their children, you know, within just a couple of generations may not be able to see, except in photographs or, you know, videos that we're taking now, animals that, you know, have been around a long, long time that were created by God. That's really, uh, that's really frightening. You know, I, 
on Go Green Radio, we've had a lot of um, guests who are active in wildlife preservation and animal rights and what have you. And, um, you know, they are very, very strong advocates for, you know, all animals and species. But I really enjoyed how your book brought to light some of the biblical passages that deal with the treatment of animals. And you're right. I think that a lot of Christians who are very focused on the New Testament teachings may not even be aware of some of these passages. And I'd love for you to talk about some of them and how they're still relevant to modern people who may not live in an agricultural setting, which was kind of the setting in which these uh, biblical passages were passed along. Yeah, well, there are indeed many passages that, that deal with the treatment of animals, and perhaps the most striking is in the Ten Commandments. In the Fourth Commandment, as it's given in Exodus, we are instructed to let our cattle observe the Sabbath. And that's where the commandment about the Sabbath is given, and that commandment includes that we let our cattle rest on the Sabbath. That's that's pretty strong, and that's, that's maybe surprising, but it's strong, but it, it, it is indeed there. And then we have others about do not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. So if an animal wants to eat, we are obligated to to allow it to eat. Do not yoke a weak animal with a strong animal. This would be painful to the weaker one. Uh, If an animal falls in a pit, you must help him raise the animal, not just for the sake of the owner of that animal, but because the animal itself needs that help. And with scholars who looked at all these teachings, pulled out a doctrine which they called the doctrine for the concern of distress of living creatures. That is, we are not to cause distress to living creatures, and if we see an animal in distress, we are obligated to relieve it. That's, that's kind of what comes out of, of all those teachings about the animals. And this is certainly applicable today if we think about factory farming as just one practice. This is such a striking violation of, of biblical teachings that it's, it's just amazing. I mean, we are raising animals under horrific conditions. And, and, and we are thinking that somehow the animal will be just as healthy as it would be if it, went, if it had ideal conditions, and we are consuming that animal. And I would assert we are not getting the nutrition from that animal that we think we are but because of the way it is raised. Mm-hmm. So... It has enormous consequences in that, and I think in the book I, I call this thing, we feel their pain, and mm-hmm. it sort of builds on that, that teaching. Well, and I'm not sure if it's, you know, scientifically provable, but, you know, I think that it's not difficult to make the jump that if you are cruel to animals and lack empathy for their pain, um, it's not too far down the continuum to lack empathy for the pain and suffering of other human beings. And, yes. um, you know, I think, I think there's a connection there that's relevant in every age. Now, your book covers numerous passages that deal with restrictions on food. And I'd love for you to talk to us about how these ancient laws have relevance to modern people of faith. Yeah, these... Um these really refer to the foods that we can eat and cannot eat. And actually, they connect with something very interesting going back to Genesis 9, because at the end of the flood, God is saying, I give all 
all the animals to you for your food. All of this is, is food for you. And then we realize, well, that really doesn't hold up. That, that statement doesn't hold up because in the Leviticus 11, we have 30 passages about what we can and cannot eat. <laughs> so it's just another example of having to look collectively at biblical teachings, not being able to take one statement and run with it and assume it applies elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But I'm not at all saying that I think that today we need to follow these restrictions about what we can eat and what we can eat. That's really not, not the point that I'm going for. I'm thinking more in the terms of, of the spirit of those teachings and the spirit of how we are instructed to, to treat animals and to care for animals and this comes into a movement that's uh, prominent today. Actually, was started in the 1970s, but it's called eco-kosher, and being being kosher from an ecological perspective. That is one of the requirements for animals to be uh, kosher or acceptable for observant Jews is that you drain the blood. You're not supposed to um, eat the blood of an animal. Mm-hmm. But if you raise that animal under horrific conditions which violate the teachings, for example, in Deuteronomy on how we are to treat animals, then can that animal still be considered acceptable to eat? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the question. And so I'm, I'm kind of asking people to, to look a little bit more deeper into this. And it engenders a sort of mindfulness where we're connecting with what we eat, with how it is raised, how it is treated, how its life is ended, which is also horrific in many cases. Mm-hmm. causing extreme pain, that this is a whole um, mindset that I think it would be useful to, to cultivate, to be aware of, of what we are eating and how it was treated and how it is lived and how that harmonizes with biblical teachings. Are we living in, in this respect in harmony with biblical teachings? Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much, much more with Steve and his new book. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Dr. Steve Jurovix. He's got a brand new book out called Hospitable Planet, Faith, Action, and Climate Change. Dr. Jurovix um, has a PhD in engineering from the University of Southern California and has worked on um, energy issues, environmental issues, um, and issues that will help mitigate climate change for decades. And his new new book marries that science background and that scientific approach to a study of the Bible, particularly of the Old Testament um, and the the area of the Bible that Christians would call the law that Jesus referred to and that Jews would call the Torah, which is a set of uh, how rules and regulations of how we are to relate to one another and to God. And he's looked to those passages for some guidance, uh, spiritual guidance um, for people of faith as we take a look at various environmental protection issues and climate change issues in the 21st century. You know, there was a passage in the chapter on recycling that really, really struck me. And I'd love for you to talk with our listeners about this. You say, we need to remain mindful of that two-generation period for repair and look into the eyes of children as we debate and postpone worldwide climate mitigation efforts. Nature heals slowly. Talk to us a little bit more about that, Steve. Yes, what I was referring to there is that time span of uh, over 60 years in which it will take the hole in the ozone layer to come back to what might be its normal size. So we ended or we phased out the use of uh, propellants and spray cans, chlorofluorocarbons, with the Montreal Protocol, which was in the 1970s, and maybe it started to kick in in the 1980s, but it will take more than half a century until that repair of the ozone layer really begins to to to, take, to really hit in, to get in. And so it's a long period. Things don't happen quickly. We tend to think of things happening quickly today. We push a button for this, and this happens. Uh, nature doesn't do that. It it heals really slowly. So. Every day that we delay action on climate change to, to begin the mitigation efforts, we make things worse off than they were the day before. We're going to make it more difficult for those future generations because the carbon that we send into the atmosphere today will be there for centuries, mm-hmm. and therefore its effects will persist for centuries. So on the human time scale, this problem is irreversible. The the climate change problem is essentially irreversible. We're not going to get back to the way things were in the 1950s or the 1900s. Uh, We will live with the planet we've created 
for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. So we do not want to delay actions on, on, on trying to mitigate this problem. In that same chapter, you rightly point out that many people, including people of faith, reject the IPCC's findings that human behavior is changing our climate. In fact, um, you know, there are several prominent radio talk show hosts who will say, come on, we're so little, we're so tiny. How could human beings possibly impact, you know, the global Um, weather patterns or climate. But I'd love for you to talk to us about the biblical references to wastefulness and how that relates to actions leading to climate change. Yeah. As as I mentioned before, I think the initial biblical reference to wastefulness occurs in that passage in Deuteronomy 2019, which talks about do not cut down food-bearing trees even in time of war. And Scholars looked at that and, and saw that as being a wasteful practice to do that. What the passage further says is you know, they are not useful for siege works. So big trees could be used as protection in time of war, but fruit trees, olive trees, and so on, almond trees, those could not be used for any protection. So it would be just willful destruction. Mm-hmm. And we were instructed not to do that. Mm-hmm. So that whole idea of not being wasteful comes into play there. And we are being tremendously wasteful with our resource today. That's kind of where the sustainability comes from. We, you know, we, we use more energy for heating than we need to, more more energy for cooling than we need to, more fuel for cars than we really need to. We know how to do things much more efficiently. We just haven't made the step to do it yet. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where that really comes in. We're, we're profligate in terms of our use of energy. We have a, we have a, and I'm not suggesting that we diminish our standard of living, but rather there are alternative ways of providing that energy that would maintain our standard of living, but not damage the earth the way we are now doing. Absolutely. There was a quote from your book that I just really found powerful, and I'd I'd like to read it and then have you share some thoughts on it with our listeners. You write, at the beginning of this third millennium, Americans must add chemicals to water to destroy the contaminants we have added. We must breathe air that we have polluted, consume food with uh, residues of insecticides and antibiotics given to animals who contract diseases because of how we raise them. And battle or succumb to diseases many traceable to an unhealthful environment and food supply. We can do better. Talk to us about what was in your heart when you wrote this. Well, I think what was in the heart is that we are, in a way, the frog in the pot that is being heated. We know that story about the frog in the water and it is being heated and it eventually succumbs. So in in a literal sense, in terms of climate change, we are in fact being heated and we are causing tremendous devastation to ourselves. But in a way, we are doing the same with our our food supply. And in this sense, we're being poisoned in a way. Poison is, is too strong a word, but we're adding chemicals to our food that may be convenient in, in multiple ways, but they're not all 
that good for us. And we are, for example, you know, putting fire retardants in things, which is a good thing to do to prevent fires, but those chemicals can have cancer-causing effects, and we're putting it in, you know, beddings for kids and furniture and other places. I mean, that's just one example of chemicals being in our environment. We, we now talk about endocrine disruptors, mm-hmm. plastics, and uh, things of this nature in which we store food, but it is an endocrine disruptor. So in many ways, we are damaging this. And we might look at, for example, the chemicals that are being put in the food and, and understand that those chemicals are there and then they meet government thresholds about the, the maximum amount that can be added to the food and be safe. But we're not taking into account the multiple things that we're eating. So mm-hmm. each individual one taken in isolation may meet government requirements you know, in terms of damage to human health, but we're adding all of them at the same time. That's not looked at. Mm-hmm. So that's a cumulative effect. A cumulative effect, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I was getting at there. I really found your comments on genetically modified food quite interesting. And we have covered that topic you know, up one side and down the other on Go Green Radio, but I've never had a guest who introduced a religious perspective on the topic of GMOs. And I'd like for you to talk to us about what the Bible has to say about commingling species and how that relates to GMOs. Yeah, there are teachings, I think they're in Deuteronomy, about uh, not sowing your field with two kinds of seeds. We're not to wear clothes made of wool and linen, and when you look at these various teachings, you see that the, the, the Bible is instructing us to preserve the categories of creation, to preserve the distinction between, between different parts of creation, to maintain those distinctions. And with the genetic engineering, we are definitely blurring those distinctions. When you put a gene from an eel into a fish, this is definitely blurring those distinctions significantly. Moreover, for people who are observant, an eel is not something that observant Jews can eat, what fish mm-hmm. can. But now when you put the gene from an eel into a fish, is this acceptable or not acceptable? You're, mm-hmm. you're commingling a forbidden food with a not forbidden food. Mm-hmm. It's a complex question, but it's just one example of, of, of where we have uh, made essentially blurred things. When, when you put a gene from some chemical into a food to make that food more resistant to an insect, is that a, a commingling effect? We've essentially put a toxin into our food, and mm-hmm. is that a, a commingling effect? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and the complexity, for example, just with the eel and the fish. So we produce a fish that has fins and scales, so one can look at that and say, well, that meets the biblical requirement for an acceptable food, but it has that gene from an eel in there which is forbidden. So is this still acceptable or not acceptable? Mm-hmm. Very interesting. It's, it's interesting, yeah. What do you think the role of the clergy should be in bringing these matters to light within Christian and Jewish congregations? Well, um, I think the, the clergy have a rather profound role to play here. Uh, 
and this is for both faiths, both Judaism and Christianity. I think the clergy have a lot to do, and primarily to to point out the biblical connections between climate change and the teachings in Scripture. I think for Christians this is more challenging because it means going back and referring to the Old Testament where it, it is not the primary text that it was referred to. And Christians are looking primarily at the New Testament, not at the Old Testament. So this is kind of a, a major shift to go do this. And in fact, I think we need to think back of those terms, Old Testament, New Testament. This was first used, as best I understand, by somebody named Melito, who was a bishop in Sardis. And it was around 190, uh, the year 190 in the common area that, that he used this term. And he was sending to a friend of his a list of the books of the Bible. And so he said, from the Old Testament, we have the five books of Moses and the prophets and the writings, and then from the New Testament, whatever. So his term for old meant ancient. It wasn't old as in irrelevant. It meant old as in ancient. These were 2,000-year-old texts, and then these are the contemporary texts. But we have taken that not to mean simply old as in ancient, but almost as, as no longer relevant. It's been superseded. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a really unfortunate uh, reading. It may have been, you know, many years ago, a, a useful designation to make as Christianity moved away from Judaism. But you are missing the teachings of Jesus at this point. You're missing what Paul called the oracles of God. Yep. Those are Absolutely. very, very strong, compelling terms. And I think that we would all be better if we kind of look back at those as well as what's in the New Testament. Absolutely. Kind of like the way Catholics do in every Mass. You know, there's a reading from the Old Testament, a reading from the New Testament, and a reading from the Gospels every Sunday. And that, or, well, actually every Mass. So if you go to Mass every day, you get it every day. But uh, very similar to what you're suggesting. We've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, there's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're 
listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just in case you've only now tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Dr. Steve Jurevix, and we're talking about his brand new book, Hospitable Planet, Faith, Action, and Climate Change. You know, there are a lot of people of faith, Christians and Jews in particular, who are employed by companies who profit from business models that cause environmental degradation. Dr. Jurevix, what should they do? Well, first of all, I think this is a, a personal decision. It's something they have to wrestle with, and I don't know that there's only one thing to do. I mean, people can, first of all, decide to work for a different company if that's feasible, or they can encourage their company to consider its long-term interests. Companies often focus on the quarterly report. Al Gore referred to that as one of the real impediments to making progress on climate change because the corporate view is the next quarterly report. But a company that's been around for 50 years should probably be looking much more at its long-term interests, and climate change is going to affect everyone, every company and every individual. So from the individual, I think people need to press for change for societal actions to to change and to help preserve a hospitable planet. And personally, they need to look into themselves and decide what is the best thing I I want to do. How can I do this? Maybe I can help my company make a change, shift to a long-term perspective, and indicate research that has been done that shows how this can be in the the company's long-term interest. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a personal one. You describe in the book a vision of an environmental movement that's closely akin to the civil rights movement. And I'd really like for you to describe your vision of that environmental movement that you see in your mind's eye so that our listeners can understand what you are, what you're thinking about. Yes. Well, it is, it is a movement, first of all, that I think should be led or co-led by clergy and non-clergy, a, a pastor and environmentalist. I think it is very important for us to bring the faith community into action on climate change. And to a degree, it is. I mean, there are many organizations that are faith-based organizations, like Interfaith Power and Light, that are heavily involved in mitigating climate change. And I list a number of them in the book. But uh, I, I think that the leadership being both, say, a pastor and environmentalist would help to, to bring people in. And I have very much in, in mind the model of the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, he really was looking at two things. One, he saw this as a religious issue, the civil rights movement, as well as a secular issue. We wanted equal accommodations, equal housing, voting rights, uh, and at the same time, there was the essential idea that we are all created by God. We are all equal before God. 
So it, it was a mix of speeches, both in churches and outside and in public, as well as demonstrations, marches, actions to push for businesses to take corrective action, to push schools, to integrate schools, to push, push for equal accommodations, and so on. So it had, it had both facets, and I'm looking at really those both facets being in the, um, in the environmental rights movement, where we give the teachings that are the underpinnings of this from a faith perspective, and at the same time, we're out on the streets pushing for change, individual actions for change to companies, corporations, governments, whatever it takes. So it's a mix of those two. That's how I see it. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a world with information overload. I mean, it's really hard to stay abreast of current events and, you know, everything that's going on in the world. And yet, in your book, you make reference to the commandment to, quote-unquote, pay attention. Talk to us about some of the environmental issues to which we should be paying attention, particularly if we are people of faith. Well, the, the, the commandment to pay attention is in Deuteronomy 6.4. Um, you know, it begins in the Hebrew with Shema Yisrael, which is pay attention, Israel, or pay attention. And, and it has the following statement, you know, God is one, is, is the, the ending. But I see that pay attention as a command in itself. So we need to pay attention to what is happening on our planet, to the increasing in temperature, to the melting of glaciers, to the melting of the Arctic and the Antarctic. Pay attention to the sea level rise. Pay attention to the fact that the United States right now has two sets of climate refugees. We've had to evacuate a population from the Louisiana Bayou area because their home area has been flooded and it's no longer habitable. We will soon be evaluating a population from an Alaskan village because it is becoming uninhabitable. All of these, of course, come with costs. So it is pay attention to what is going on around us and to understand where is this coming from and what might we need to do it to do about it. And it is rooted in that commandment to pay attention. Look mm-hmm. what's going on. Let's not be oblivious to, to where we are living. And I think that's, that's kind of how I see that aspect of, of paying attention. One of the things that you feel like, um, according to your book, that would be the most impactful thing that we could do is change the way that our electricity is generated. But, you know, a lot of people, they pay their utility bill. They don't really feel like they have control over that. What are some things that everyday Americans can do to help bring about a change from non-renewable to renewable energy in this country? Well, The electric utilities are making changes today because they're moving away from coal and going to natural gas. And on the surface, sort of on the most um, quick, easy look, that is a roughly 50% reduction in carbon emissions. But it doesn't take into account how how much carbon is released as to obtain that natural gas, and particularly Mm -hmm. in the fracking. The fracking has given rise to an abundance of natural gas, and, but that fracking process releases methane, and it also releases CO2. And so the, the actual total difference between coal and natural gas, I don't think, has really been arrived at. 
but I think we what we can do is two things. We can make changes on the personal level in how much electricity we personally use, what we use in our home, the awareness of our purchases, look at that Energy Star tag on products and mm-hmm. go for the one that will be the least cost to operate over the life of the product because it's absolutely energy-efficient one. Right. And, and then There's push for changes for, with our utilities. Dr. Jurovic, thank you so much for being with us. I have thoroughly enjoyed talking with you today. Folks, check out his book, Hospitable Planet, Faith, Action, and Climate Change. You know, we'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.